this sort of what they call the kind of fat acceptance movement, where people say, you know, I'm, I'm clinically I might be overweight, but I'm happy and I'm healthy. Screw everybody else. I'm going to live my life. And actually, I'm I'm on board with that, as long as you really are happy and healthy. I think some people use that as a mask to tell people they are when they're really not. But if you are, fine. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I hope everyone is safe and not too overly stressed or anxious with what's going on, especially in New York and the rest of the country. Um, I hope maybe this little hour can offer some kind of distraction. Uh, I'm really happy to have on this week Tommy Tomlinson, who is a journalist who's written for Esquire, ESPN Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Forbes, Garden and Gun. He was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in commentary. He's been in Best American Sports Writing twice, and his first book came out last year with The Elephant in the Room about his journey stepping on a scale at 50 years old, weighing 460 pounds, and confronting the existential threat of that. And it's an incredible book, and myself and a lot of people I know, you know, stepping on the scale is has been periodically a uh, a real scary thing and a source of shame and it's I think it's that issue that really tied into um, what led a lot of people into a boxing ring was losing weight or getting over the trauma of being beaten up I think both of those things certainly drew me there and uh, a lot of the the fighters that I've interviewed over the years um, trauma was always the the passport into trying to reclaim respect and Tommy's book speaks to that in one of the most articulate honest accounts that I've ever read he he's just a fascinating character and and a really beloved journalist in the industry you're you're not going to talk to anybody who knows him who doesn't really adore him and uh, this was this was special to have a, a chat with him because um, his book is fantastic, and I think it's touched a lot of people around the world. So I hope you enjoy it, and I, I hope everybody is doing okay with this this mess. Well, yeah. So you, there, there are three memoirs that seem to deeply resonate with the public that had a similar theme. Yeah. Yours. So I wonder if we could just start there. Yeah, if you want. Sure. Wherever you, wherever you like. Yeah. So you have Roxanne Gay. You have, he- with, uh, heavy being the other the other book that you mentioned, and Elephant in the Room. And, I mean, obviously obesity is this epidemic in this country. But, I remember seeing that excerpt in the Atlantic and just being blown away about the connective tissue of so many people I knew in my own in my own life, in my own family, friends. A period in my own life where suddenly weight became a conflicting issue where you're shocked when a brother says look you're you're fat and it was a wow so I, I would love to just hear from where you started to getting to approaching a book like this like so such a brave challenging topic well um, it, it may look brave from the outside I was a chicken at the beginning hmm. um, I talked about uh, this book the first conversation that I had about it was with um, my agent, a guy named Sloan Harris, um, back in 2011. Wow. Uh, we met here in New York, and he asked me what I was thinking about, and I told him a story about how I had looked up the place where we were going to meet for breakfast. Mm. I looked it up the night before on Google to look at the images to make sure there was a comfortable place for me to sit, because <clears throat> when you're a big guy... You know, if a booth is too small or a bar stool at the, you know, the bar stools are bolted to the floor or something, it could be really fraught. And so I wanted to make sure I had a comfortable spot. And as I told him about that, I sort of kind of spun that out into how I felt like my whole life kind of felt like an obstacle course right. that I was trying to run as a fat guy. And that I knew 
that not only would that get more difficult, but that eventually it would kill me um, and, I, and not be able to stop eating, basically. And when I was done, he looked at me and said, well, dude, that's your book. Hmm. You should write that. And I knew he was right when he said it, and I was afraid to do it. I was afraid of what I might have to reveal about myself, and I was afraid of how, how that would make my loved ones feel, yeah. people who cared about me. So I didn't do anything about it for three years. Huh. And then in 2014, I ended up doing a story for ESPN the magazine on a guy named Jared Lorenzen, who was a former quarterback at the University of Kentucky, who was known for being the biggest quarterback anybody had ever seen. He uh, easily weighed over 300 pounds yeah. during his playing days. I happened to catch him on SportsCenter one night in 2014. He was long out of the long after his normal playing days, but he was playing for a minor league football team in Kentucky hmm. on a astroturf rug that was uh, laid down over the dirt floor of a horseshoe arena. Wow. Playing for this team called the Northern Kentucky River Monsters. Great name. And still could sling it, still could really throw the ball, but it clearly gained a whole lot of weight since his playing days. Yeah. And so I saw that and I thought, man, somebody needs to do a story on him. And I bet nobody else could understand him quite like I could. And so I looked him up the next day. I ended up doing a story on him for ESPN. Uh, it became a huge hit online. Some like four million people Whew. read that story. And as I was finishing it, I realized how I was able to write about Jared in a way that was empathetic and and compassionate to him, but also told the hard truths that needed to be told yeah. in the story. And as I finished it, I thought, well, I can do that to, about my story as well. So I called Sloan back. I said, I'm ready to do this story now. And that was the beginning of the book. Hmm. And, and I started writing in 2014. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I read your book before I had a podcast, but with so many of the boxers that I've profiled, the elite boxers, it seems like the more trauma there was to begin with, the effort begins to heal that trauma. And from that scabbing over is this drive. And very often it resulted from a family thing or a bullying thing or a weight issue. A lot of these people get sent to a gym to lose the weight or to overcome this feeling of shame uh, and humiliation of an incident of violence or that kind of thing. But I was so taken with... Some, I've listened to a number of your podcasts where you talk about th this incident where you're arriving early somewhere plotting about where to safely sit and that airplanes are a problem or being married to a woman who does not have some of the restrictions that you do. Um, what kind of impact does that have on her where she has to meet you versus you being able to meet her as a result of this? Um, that I just thought... A lot of people don't even consider that reality. There's just such an immediate knee-jerk hatred or fear, it seems, that's in, that permeates the culture on this issue. And so I wonder why it took this fucking long <laughs> for some people to get out there and really speak to it and put a face on it. Um, not to go on, but, but just... I listened to something you said where you had a column a wonderful column that was very successful where anybody who objected to it would just unload the vitriol from all these other issues in their life and attack you, and you'd call every one of them back. Yeah, if, if usually if somebody was really angry or sort of cruel on the phone, if they happened to like leave their phone number or their email address or whatever, I would always call those people back. And what happened almost every time was they pick up the phone and I'd say, hey, this is Tommy from The Observer, The Charlotte Observer, where I worked at the time, and they would almost always go, oh man, I am so sorry. Hmm. And it would be something that had gone on in their life that day. They had overslept, the kids were driving them crazy, car wouldn't start, they burnt the toast, whatever it was, and they were like this you know, steam pressure built up inside of them. They happened to look down at the newspaper. I wrote something they didn't like that day, and I was a place where they could vent. Right. And I think that happens also to folks who are different 
it, what, however it might be, sure. whether they're fat or a different race or a different culture or whatever it is, just on the street and online and all these places where people have whatever this shit that's going on in their own lives. They see somebody who's different. They see somebody who they think ought to be able to fix their lives in some way, and that steam flies out toward them. Yeah. And so it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't me they were angry at. It was usually whatever was going on inside them that they were trying to release the pressure on. Right. And once I realized that, you know, that made my life a lot easier. Well, and, and I was listening to a conversation that I think Bill Maher was having, might have been on like the, the Joe Rogan podcast, where he was talking about that he was called out by James Corden for making a comment about the epidemic of, of obesity and, and, and spewing a lot of statistics about what ensues from that. And Corden got a, a huge amount of, of support by calling him out and saying, you're shaming these people and this is just sadistic and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I just wondered, like, when, <clears throat> when I think of some of the people when I was a kid that my dad got me to fall in love with, artists that were out in the culture, Marlon Brando, Orson Welles, Hemingway, I was also aware as you saw them, because I came to them obviously late in their lives, they were all morbidly obese. Right. And I remember that was the first time where I was kind of thinking, like, these were all such beautiful people when they were young. What happened? Well, what happened to them? I, who knows? I mean, I don't, I don't know their... No, no, I'm not asking you, but, oh, I, just, but, asking but I, was, I, was, I was feeling that is how, what went wrong where, and I'm not saying I'm defending this position, but at the right. time I just thought, how how did they let themselves go? And and what occurred to me was I was watching the same thing happen to my father. He was eating himself from a person who my mother would always say, "Oh, your your dad had this incredible body when I met him," but my dad did not have that body at 40. You know, out, drinking and and eating and and closet eating and and there was this connection between pleasure and shame that was intrinsic to his relationship to food that I was thinking, I don't understand what's going on here, but it's, it's profound. And, and you talked about that a lot with growing up, that food was love from your family. Oh, sure. That it, you know, I grew up in a, in a sort of country Southern family that until my generation really basically had no money. Mm. My mom and dad were sharecroppers. They picked cotton on other people's farms when they were kids. Um, my mom qu had to quit school in the fourth grade. My dad quit school in the sixth grade. They worked with their hands and their backs their whole lives. Yeah. Um, and the one thing they had, usually, um, that made them equal to everybody else was the meals they could eat because they right. were incredible cooks. Um, they knew how to make great meals and they needed that fuel to get them through the day. You know, they needed to eat, you know, half a fried chicken and half a dozen biscuits and pecan pie or whatever just to, like, make it through the next day without collapsing. Well, as we sort of moved up uh, class-wise, mm -hmm. you know, by the time I came around, my mom and dad are probably what you would call working poor. You know, they both had jobs. We had a little house where the mortgage was literally $50 a month when my mom and dad bought their house. <clears throat> um, so they still didn't have much, but they had a little bit more. They were able to enjoy some things in life. But those meals, those big meals, carried over as something that then was not as much you know, vital fuel to get them through the day, but sort of had this symbolic weight to them as well. Yeah. You know, it was gratitude. It was love. It was appreciation for what they had grown and cooked and caught and all those things. And so those meals carried something more than the calories yeah. with them. And they're, they're really important and still are to this day. And it's certainly not just a Southern thing. And it's, it's true of lots of cultures. Sure. Whereas the generations go by and the people who are eating these meals need them less and less as we have desk jobs and things like that. But the cultural significance of those meals doesn't go away. No. And, and you... You talk about in your book that, that from the get-go, your dad is working so hard that, and he's a very loving 
parent, as, as was your mother, that one of the extensions of that love was to leave you some chocolate milk, and it was peanut butter. He would come, he would, he worked, he and my mom both worked at a seafood packing plant. Yeah. And on his way home, he would stop by the canteen there, and he'd buy like a carton of chocolate milk and a pack of peanut butter crackers, hmm. and he would bring those home to me. Now, this is before I even remember, this is when I was like maybe three years old, four years old, but my mom remembered, and he would bring them home every night, and my mom would say, don't do that, you're gonna, you're gonna make him fat. But I was my dad's only child. Right. He was 48 when I was born. Oh. So he thought, I think, that I was, he was never gonna have a kid. So when I came around, I was this treasure to him, and he was, that's one way in his culture, what he grew up in, that's how you showed love. You fed someone. Well, and the, I wonder, you, you mentioned in your book that this was something you've struggled with as long as you can remember. Your, right. Your whole life it's been an issue. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't exactly know what the statistics are now just for, for Americans being overweight, but it's a huge percentage. Depending on how you measure it, um, and the, the, uh, as many as 40% right. of adults. Or at an unhealthy way, or not an unhealthy Considered obese. Consider, considered obese, yes. all right. Yeah, because I, one of the things that I find so challenging about this, I know like Freud said drives are silent, but when I think about where I moved into an area where my brother would say I was fat, or kids at school would suddenly you'd hear chubby or that kind of thing, or you didn't like your photograph being taken, um, where there's a shift, I can't put my finger on exactly what pushed me off a bit of a ledge where I didn't have any kind of unhealthy relationship with food. It wasn't any way of nurturing me in a way that I didn't feel nurtured in the world. And then it's sort of startling to be confronted by something that you're not even aware is unhealthy, and yet it's visible everywhere you go. Um, I wonder how it's different if that's been your entire experience, your entire identity. Um, you know, we're we're all secondary characters in each other's lives, and generally we don't label those secondary characters very kindly. And so I can imagine for you, I mean, who's somebody who loves sports, loved fishing, you're a very active person, but as kids are just so unbelievably cruel, um, how did you deal with, like you, you, you've talked a bit about that one of the first things that, that really challenged you with this was that the girls you were interested in, you felt the, the biggest obstruction was simply that all I am to them is somebody large. Right. So I just wonder, like, how, how do you feel the culture is moving trying to deal with this issue that more and more of us are identifying with? You're not the stranger any longer or the um, yeah, outlier any longer. Yeah, I'm in the mainstream, unfortunately. Right. Um, I don't know that, I mean, the culture is um, probably not dealing with it uh, in a in a super healthy way. Um, I mean, there are some good things happening. So there are, um, I think there is sort of a, a, a dawning awakening that not everybody who looks overweight is automatically obese or unhealthy. Yeah. There's this sort of what they call the kind of fat acceptance movement where people say, you know, I'm, I'm, Clinically, I might be overweight, but I'm happy and I'm healthy. Screw everybody else. I'm going to live my life. And actually, I'm, I'm on board with that as long as you really are happy and healthy. Right. I think some people use that as a mask to tell people they are when they're really not. But if you are, fine. Well, and sorry to interrupt, but is there something to that? I noticed like recently Adele, and I'm not a pop culture person. Anymore. I don't right. know who's performing at the Grammys anymore. Sure. But I know she lost a lot of weight. She did. And there seemed to be a certain segment that was pretty upset about it. Yeah, because she became, I think, sort of a symbol of people. Right. She's obviously incredibly successful and seemed to be happy at, at being overweight. I don't know why she decided to lose weight. She either felt maybe unhealthy or she couldn't do something she wanted to do. Or she was moving into some new phase of her life where she wanted to try acting or somewhere where the way she looked became more important. I don't know. Right. But obviously, a lot of people were sort of seeing her as a role model, and it may have upset them that she lost weight. I think what we have to understand is, and, and the culture's coming around to this slowly, is that people land on sort of 
different body types and weights and that there is no like ideal. And so if you're carrying around 20 extra pounds, but you feel good about it, then people should let you be sure. with that. Um, and I think pe- slowly that's kind of happening. There are people who are heavier in our society who are doing well. There are now swimsuit models who are what you know the fashion industry call plus, calls plus size, and they're doing really well. There are people in all sorts of, you know, in Hollywood and other cultures who are, you know, doing well for their size. But there are also those stigmas, and there are areas, especially I think for young people, where there's that intense pressure to be thin or to be to look a certain way or something like that. And I think it's super hard when you're a teenager and you're just trying to figure out what you love and what you care about, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel bad. Food can be one of those things for a lot of us that really makes us feel good yeah. when we're down. You know, that's sort of the the devilish part of it, right? It can make you feel really good when you're down. And when you're up, it, it's something that everybody does to celebrate. You know, when you're happy and you want to enjoy life with your friends, what do you do? You go out to eat somewhere. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword there. And so I think for a lot of people, especially if you're young, that just becomes a really hard thing to navigate. And it was for me. You know, there were, like you said, there were girls I wanted to date who had no interest in me. There were things I wanted to do that I really couldn't do. But I could not convert that into changing my lifestyle to make, you know, dating those girls more likely. Some people, as you said, with boxers and things like that, that's a catalyst for them to change. For me, it was a long, long time in coming. Well, and, and, and for you also, I mean, you begin the book with quite an epic lead by just citing your weight uh-huh. and what it meant to cite your weight publicly, just to put that out there. And you you equate it, I think, with death, with with that this is a weight. I mean, you mentioned, I, I found this fascinating. You talked about David Carr's memoir and how he approached his memoir by reporting out his own drug addiction and right. consulting friends and you did the same thing by asking your friends, kind of, what do you say about me behind my back? And the consistent theme was, was he, he could die from this. What do we do? And I remember, I remember saying that with my father, where it was like having the carton of ice cream in the freezer every day, every single day, and big meals and all that kind of thing, binge eating, saying, what is this about? And he'd say, it's a party. It's like every day is a party. And I'd say, I get it. But if you reverse engineer what you're pursuing, you're kind of omitting what you are avoiding. And I want to know why somebody needs to have a birthday party every day. Because I don't want birthday cake every day. I really like it now and again. But yeah. when it's every day, it becomes something quite different. And, and so I, I wonder, like, is there... You talked about the movie Sideways, which is a very popular film. I found it fascinating. I'm, I'm so fascinated by how that film uses a kind of upbeat Muzak score to make it seem like it's a, a light comedy. But we're talking about somebody who's really on the edge, who's drinking their way into almost suicide, destroying their life, miserable, morbid depression for years, no real prospects of anything, and... You talked about how that movie really focuses on both the pleasure and the shame of what is driving this guy. So I, I just wonder, how do you see your own relationship to it and sort of where society is coming to and sort of assessing what this is about? Well, my own relationship to it was certainly like when I was talking about Gerald uh, Lorenzen, it was, it was the most reliable source of pleasure in my life yeah um it's always there and and i think that's what makes it so parallel to a lot of other addictions or compulsions or whatever you want to call it is that you're trading those long-term consequences for the short-term pleasure yeah i knew no matter what else was going on in my life no matter how great things they were or no matter how shitty they were if i had a pint of ice cream i would feel great 
Yeah. I wouldn't feel great long, you know, but I would feel great in that moment. And sometimes when you go through life, just getting through that next moment is all you can sort of focus on. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you know, and as, as with anything, whether it's, you know, anything that you really find that you're compulsed to do, whether it's eating a lot or like checking Twitter on your phone or whatever, the, the, the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I would, I would eat a big meal. I'd sort of digest it and I'd get over it or whatever. And I immediately want another one. I had a, I had hunger, but not in any way related to was I full or not. It was just a craving for more. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of the, the cycle you get into when you get hooked on anything is that you can never have enough and that high never lasts long enough. And so, you know, I'm eating four or five big meals a day and snacks in between at my worst. And, and it still wasn't enough. I'd still want more. And so, and, and for me, it just took, and, and the big part of what this book is about is figuring out why that was happening. As, as I've told lots of people on my book tours and stuff, if you have 20 pounds to lose, you can go on Weight Watchers, you can find the latest fad diet, you know, the bookstore or whatever. Chances are if you apply yourself a couple of months, you could probably lose that 20 pounds. If you have 200 pounds to lose, the how is never enough. You have to figure out the why. And that's what it, <laughs> that's what it took me to realize, you know, unfortunately, when I was, took me to 50 years old to do it, I had to start figuring out why I got so big in the first place. What was going on in my life to make that cycle so concrete and so desirable for me. And there are a lot of reasons, and they're, you know, I kind of lay them out in the book. But um, that was the key for me, was figuring out that how was never going to get it done. I had to figure out why first, and that might lead me to the how. Yeah. Well, and you, 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 I think in an interview you gave, maybe you touched on it in the book as well, you mentioned that part of where you're at now is the child who missed out on a lot of experiences because of being large. You want some of those back. There's, yeah. a, there's a yearning, I think, consciously and subconsciously about that. And I've met so many people, especially moving to New York, where it's you know very attractive city and, and very ostentatious place. I've met these women and men who say, uh, a man who is in front of a camera saying, I can be on camera if I'm over 172 pounds. All I hear is about my chin or my gut. So I know... I can't show up, or else that's all people see. And women saying, if I was five pounds lighter, suddenly men have to look at me. But if I'm heavier, I become invisible. Absolutely. And I think you know, a lot of these memoirs in the, in the genre that I'm in, this sort of weight loss memoir, I guess, most of those books are written by women. Yeah. And the reason is that women historically have paid a much higher price for being overweight in the workplace, in the dating world, just out on the street, everywhere. You know, they have that, that term that younger people use, dad bod. Yeah. Now, so if you're a guy and you're carrying 50 or 20 extra pounds, sometimes it's considered charming. You get a pass. You get a pass. Yeah. Women don't get that pass. And so most of these books, <laughs> true, isn't it? Most of these books have been written by women. Um, and so mine is sort of a, I guess, a subgenre in this, in this grouping of kind of weight struggle books written by guys. But yeah, I mean, in certain jobs, if you're on a TV camera, you know, if you have, like, if you're a flight attendant or something like that, five or ten pounds make the difference whether, first of all, whether you get the job or not, and then secondly, how people perceive you in that job. You're right. If you're, if you're a, a TV weather person or you're an actor or you're a singer or something, you know, you can get to a point where the only thing people see when you wander out is how much you weigh. And so that becomes an intense pressure to make weight the way that you set to do. And like peewee football, you have to make weight in those jobs too. It's just up to the audience to decide what the weight is. Yeah. 
Well, and you talk about like reaching reaching this this point at fifty to to address it and to identify the reasons behind it. Um, in conclusion, or I guess it, it's a it's a continuing conclusion. Sure. Um, is it more of the positive things in, in your connection with food that was formed when you were a kid, with that, that love and that connection to your family and and the South? I mean, the food is unbelievably good down sure. there. Or or were there other? Is it the the things to avoid inside? If that's a fair way to characterize it, that's a good question. I, I, certainly, some of both. I think the 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 younger I I was the more positive the associations were. And as I got older and, you know, not only did I gain sort of an awareness of what I was doing to myself. I mean, from the time I was 10, I realized, okay, if you eat that, you're going to get fatter and it's going to be bad for you. Um, But as I got older and the consequences became more and more apparent in my life, and then I became, it became, excuse me, much more, I guess, focused on the negative. Yeah. Like I was eating to make myself feel better. And so I think it, you know, it sort of swung as I got older to the point where by the time I turned 50 and started really trying to make changes, it was mostly sort of a negative thing. Yeah. You know, and again, enjoyed pleasure in the moment, but very much like a drug addict, the high was much shorter and you needed it. You needed more and more and more to keep afloat, basically. It's interesting that this, this issue has been with us for so long. And yet, like, even I remember with my dad where he'd say, look, I have an addictive personality. And I'd say, but you don't get addicted to anything that you don't want to do. You never get addicted to salad or right. us going to the gym or doing anything to help you. I don't why can't we utilize this personality that you keep using as a refuge in a positive way? Well, people people do get addicted to those things. Oh, no, they, they, do, they, they don't, but you don't call it that. Right. Like if somebody goes out and runs every day and they love to run 10 miles a day, you wouldn't really say that person's addicted to running. Or they go, you say they're getting in shape. Right. Well, there is a sort of addictive part of a personality that hugely make, makes you want to yeah. do that every day. And, sure. and 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 gain the pleasure that you get from that but it's a positive result right. by and large and so nobody thinks of it as an addiction they think of it as just a routine you do to make your life better you know i read every day <laughs> for several hours yeah. not just for my job but for pleasure but nobody would say i have a reading addiction no it's true but if i go a couple of days and i haven't like stuck my nose in a book i feel sort of out of sorts mm. right so though there's many things in our lives that are probably fall under the clinical level and addiction that we don't think about like that. It's only the ones that have bad consequences in our lives. And so your, your dad may have had several things that he really did as part of his routine that were good for him. The rest of you just didn't think of it that way. And so, um, yeah, we are drawn many of us to those things that we know are bad for us. And the, and the problem is the difficulty in treating it and fixing it is that it's the, the answers are different for everyone. Right. You right. know, it with somebody, it may be like in the Roxanne Gay book, I think we talked about a little bit before he came on the air. You know, there's like an inciting incident for her. For me, there really wasn't. It was just like the way I grew up and the culture I grew up in and all that sort of thing. And so the, the answers are, are different. You really have to go back and figure out the why in any of these things. With anybody, there's some some switch that flipped, some pattern that emerged, something in your life since probably since childhood mm-hmm. or early adulthood that caused you to have this problem. And you have to go back and figure out what that was and make sense of it, become self-aware about it, before you can tackle it, really. It makes me think, I mean, I don't know that you can always go back and pinpoint it to something. As I say, I have some some clear times where it's very easy to do it, and other times where I, it's much more amorphous for me. Right. And I remember, uh, I guess about 23 years old, walking down the street and spotting a scar 
on the back of the head of a very large obese person and the scar belonged to my friend who looked like Allen Iverson just a naturally amazingly skinny live muscular kid but now he was 250 pounds for a five foot seven guy but nobody had that scar that scar was from a fishing accident where a hook was cast or a, a, a fly rod was cast and the hook went into the back of his head and created this C shape, this large, about three inches in the back of his head. And he, the next time I saw him two years later, he was taking a huge amount of steroids and transformed into this 3% body fat, 200 pounds. And two years later, he was dead. And his mother created this thing where from birth until death at 37 years old were snapshots from his life. And as we went through it, and I, I met his life when he was seven and I was six. And you see this happy, happy kid uh, all the way until he was 12 and, and you see the lights go out in his eyes and the clothing becomes much more angry, aggressive, dark, then the tattoos everywhere, just this profound change. I don't know what was happening in the background and then the weight gain. It was just such a startling way to deconstruct an identity losing its way falling apart and then in hindsight because the guy kill, didn't kill himself intentionally through suicide but I think it was pharmaceutical drugs he overdosed um, through misadventure um, the irrevocability but while it's happening you think well I can help in this and this and this way and maybe get it back on track but some people you can't so I I think that there is that kind of dilemma with a lot of people. I mean, to start a book with, I'm, I'm 460 pounds. I, I wonder how much you thought for beginning the book and for readers is the assumption that you're going to end up being 180 pounds and be like Ron <laughs> or, or, or uh, Richard Simmons and, right. and be that inspiring thing. But it went somewhere quite different. Well, yeah, I, um, and I wasn't quite sure how to approach that, partly because... I wasn't sure when I started the book where I was going to be when it ended. Yeah. You know, my editors and I talked about that. You know, what if I don't lose weight during this book? What if I don't seem to be healthier at the end? Because I'd never really lost weight in any sustainable way before. And what we decided was the book was not about the number. It was about the struggle. Right. And so I wanted to make it clear from the beginning, you know, I'm I'm – having trouble here, I don't know where this is going to go, all that sort of thing. And I hope, especially as you saw, as you see during the book, me making progress, but very incremental and small progress. I hope it dawned on people pretty quickly that this was not going to be a book where, yeah, I'm, a, I'm 150 pounds at the end. And there's uh, a workout guide for, for readers to buy the next book. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, there's not, I wish, I wish I'd figured out something I could sell from that, but I don't have a, like a diet plan or an exercise plan to sell as will become pretty apparent to anybody who reads it. But, you know, that's why I, I put the numbers in there because they're important. Yeah. But I wanted the bulk of the book to be about the struggle and the sort of self-awareness that I very slowly and painfully came to. And if people see that as the bulk of the book uh, and know that um, that's what's important. The other Part of that is just as a practical matter, I learned very quickly from doing research on all this stuff and from my own experiences too. That people who lose a lot of weight really fast almost always gain it all back. Yes, they do. Ninety-one percent of the people who do that gain it all back. Crushing statistic. Crushing statistic. Fuck. My doctor said from the very beginning, he gave me that statistic and he said, Your your goal for the rest of your life is just to stay in the nine percent. Hmm. No matter how small the victory is, you know, day to day, week to week, month, just keep in the 9% and you'll eventually get there. And so that's why as, as you're looking at me today, I'm obviously still a big guy. Um, I have a long way to go, but I am much more confident in my path to getting there yeah. than I was five years ago. Yeah. No, it, it, that is such an interesting way of looking at, I mean, my God, the failure that's associated with it. And not only that, the failure, the problem is your your body is very cruel to you. 
if you lose weight really fast. There was a, a big study that I talk about in the book where they studied the contestants on the season of, of The Biggest Loser. And not only did most of them gain all the weight back, but as they measured their metabolism, they saw that as they tried to lose the weight they had gained, you know, as they tried to lose that weight again, their metabolism kept going slower and slower and slower, which meant they, had to eat, they were forced to eat less and less and less just to maintain, much less lose weight. Your body always, once you gain a lot of weight, your body kind of sets to a point and feels like that's the weight you're supposed to be. And if you start losing a lot of weight, especially really fast, your body thinks you're starving. Right. And so it basically like shuts down your metabolism so that you can gain back what it thinks is the weight you're supposed to have. And so it's just, it's, you know, incredibly frustrating if you lose a lot of weight really fast and then you gain it back. To go back down the mountain is a much bigger struggle than doing it the first time. And so that's why my doctor and I said, I'm just going to try to do this really slowly. Well, and, and it's an issue also that I think so acutely strikes at our sense of identity because, I mean, especially in childhood, I remember fat jokes being far more common than gay slurs, even before we knew what a gay slur was. We didn't know what being gay was right. when, when those epithets were thrown at people, right? It was just any difference, anything to attack. And I don't know, like there, there's a, it, it fascinates me because Trump is somebody right now who is famous for attacking people based on the most shallow pretenses. And yet I saw like a couple of days ago, there was a photograph and I'm not quite sure if it was doctored or not. I, I've heard some rumors that it wasn't. I don't know if you've seen it. The ones where the hair, his hair is blown back. And the, the you can see the imprint yeah. of this halo effect of his real skin tone versus right. the whatever the fuck he's putting on his face. Yeah. And he immediately responded to it. He doesn't respond to a lot of tweets directly and said it's a fake photo, fake, fake news and all of that. I don't think it actually was. I think that the app had a filter or something, but the, the photo was legit. I mean, it's yeah. on Getty now. But I thought, isn't it interesting that somebody, kind of like you were describing with all these people calling you, that 95% of them not only back down from barking at you, but apologize, that there seems to be this huge amount of stress and anxiety and anger related to this issue, but we're all kind of on the same ship, right? Like, Well, Trump's definitely on that ship. I mean, you know, it's, it's hilarious to me how... He's in perfect yeah, health, the, though. Well, I was going to say, among the thousands of, you know, lies and and misstatements at all. The one that's the most hilarious to me is that he's in perfect shape and, you know, he's 230 pounds or whatever his doctor says he is because it's so obviously not true. Right. You know, and, and it's, it's part of that sort of, you know, I, I, I feel like in some weird small way it's part of his goal is to make people believe anything yeah. about him no matter what he says. Because if you look at that guy and you say he's 230 pounds and in shape, you're, you know, you're self-delusional, right? And so, so, but that is, you know, um, I, I do think that one of the few remaining safe jokes there is to make is the fat joke. Yeah. You know, if you watch like a sitcom, there are very few jokes about race or gender, things like that anymore. Um, but a fat joke is still okay. Yeah. And I'm fine with that as long as it's funny. Right. If it's just gratuitous or it's a throwaway or it's just a, you know, lame joke, then find something better. If it's a funny fat joke, I'm going to laugh, too. But, you know, I, I do think it's one of the few remaining things that people are allowed to joke about. And I think it's maybe the last remaining vice hmm. that people are still kind of on board with. Like you can't smoke anymore. You can't drink a lot. You can, no, nobody wants to see you out in public drunk anymore. Like in I have cigarettes day. for us, though, Tommy, if you want say, some. Yeah. Um, you know, all these things that are sort of now looked down on in public, but eating out, you know, eating big meals is not only okay, it's, uh, it's approved. It's like yeah. seeing that. I mean, you see on commercials. And, and not just commercials, but real life. When you want to get together with your friends, what do you do? You go to a restaurant 
and you have you you get pizza or whatever. When you're you know celebrating anything, you know there's a big sheet cake at your birthday. It's time for a cake or whatever. That's how we celebrate, and it's how we um, gather. It's how you know. So those all those things that are sort of food centric are not only not taboo, they're still like celebrated and important and part of our lives in a way that a lot of the other vices we have in our lives are not anymore. Right. And so it, it makes it a little bit more for those of us who have issues with food and makes it more of a minefield because we, you know, the, the obstacles we have to avoid are ones that a lot of people don't have to avoid anymore. Well, and, and also, I mean, like Sideways, I thought it was interesting, is like wine snobs love that film because wine is about appreciating wine. Wine is an expression of place and on and on and on. It's not just getting drunk. Right. But there is a huge element of it has this wonderful pretense. It's, it's this frosting over a pile of shit, of bullshit, in that I remember my dad saying as a, as a kid to me, like, they're, I was like, why? Boy, people sure have all these these problems with addiction here and like the part of town where he lived versus my mother that was a nicer part of town he's like there's no difference there's just as many addicts here as there are in the wealthy part of town they can afford to hide it they have walls right here the walls fall down and you have to look into what's really going on but it, it's not an issue that discriminates based on being wealthy it's just they appreciate wine whereas so-and-so just wants to get drunk yeah. or whatever right it's and and the weight issue definitely has has an element of that where it seems like we've moved around that to be heavier for a time showed you we were kind of affluent or comfortable and then i have to listen to Brad Pitt who at 56 looks like he's 22 and say it's just genetics like yeah. I, I don't monitor my diet it's just complete bullshit <laughs> clearly he vigilantly attends to his diet and workout routine but he wants the illusion like trump does i guess that it's all genes yeah you know it's, uh... And I think part of it is, I mean, there's this, nobody, I, I, you know, I looked at a lot of studies and talked to scientists and stuff for this book, and there's this, for everybody, it's like a part of your genetics, part of your cultural makeup, part of what you're exposed to, part of where you live, all those sorts of things, which is, is what makes it so hard to treat, because the answer is different for everybody. Yeah. And so, you know, for example... And my weight, especially when I was at my highest, almost everybody who weighs 460 pounds is diabetic, has high blood pressure, heart problems. I had none of that. Huh. So I had I won the genetic lottery in that way, and that I didn't have all those problems. Yeah, and I've never had. So I got incredibly lucky, in some sense, and that I was able to weigh that much, and not have to worry about getting an insulin insulin shot every day. And so there is this mix of your DNA and your background and your culture and upbringing and all that does make you this unique person. And that makes it very difficult to figure out, you know, what's the key to unlocking you to get better. Who, who do you think you would be if, if you were just somebody who was a, it's an ectomorph, isn't that the one that is naturally very I thin? guess, I, I don't remember the I don't remember you. It's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I've, uh, um, I think it did make me who I am in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, you know, it's a chicken or egg question. I grew up loving to read books, love to write, all those sort of things. There are a lot of really gifted oral storytellers in my family. So I come from that tradition too. Yeah. So I don't, but I don't know if I'd grown up, you know, weighing 150 pounds, if I would be doing what I do or I'd be doing something else that might be more physical by in nature. Certainly I know that if I'd grown up one generation earlier, I would have been working in the fields or in a factory or something. That, more than anything, we talked about. Yeah reasons that shift from blue collar work to white collar work I think as much as anything in America certainly has contributed because everybody in my family you know they have the same genetics I do everybody in my family before my generation looked like triathletes huh. because they had to work in the fields and factories you know they had to work for a living fifth um, day to do hard physical labor everybody from my generation forward kind of looks like me 
because we all work desk jobs and and so huh. that's that switch flipped yeah. between you know it used to be when my mom and dad's generation i looked this up one time about when my mom and dad were sort of coming into the workforce 50s 60s like about half the people in america did jobs that required physical labor yeah. now it's like 10 percent, 12 percent, and so that as much as anything is why we're bigger as a culture because most of us have jobs that did not require us to sweat for eight hours a day. And and so we don't. You know, my mom and dad worked really, really hard so that I wouldn't have to. And they succeeded. Hmm. And that's an incredible gift to me. But it has its side effects, and this is one of them. Well, no, you're completely right because, I mean, on my side, all the all the genetics, like the paternal is a very dominant gene in my family. And my grandfather was the last one doing physical labor as a logger. And the guy looks like a middleweight boxing chain. He's 140 pounds his entire adult life. And then it does become an issue as a lawyer for my dad or me writing where it's kind of like I'm aware, like, you better get an hour of exercise every day. There's fear. There's yeah. like real fear because I don't have to do a 10-hour physical labor job. Right. But no, nobody in my family before my generation had ever, like, heard of a gym. There were no gyms. work. Their, their, <laughs> their work. lives were the gym. Yeah, you right. know, and they and they worked incredibly hard for very small amounts of money, you know, to to claw their way out of the dust of the cotton fields, basically, and the effort they had to put in to do that, you know, gave them the the bodies that they had. If we had switched, you know, if I had been born in 1915 when my dad was born, and my dad had been born. In 1964, when I was born, he might look like me and I might look like him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I love the book and, and it's a pleasure meeting you for the first time. Thank you, Brad. I really Thanks appreciate it, Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. And our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.